All of you, I'm sure, have a most embarrassing moment. Uh, I'm sure that's why the current uh, spate of television programs on embarrassing moments and uh, blunders is so are so popular, uh, because most of us can identify in, in one way or another with the kind of mistakes that people make. My most embarrassing moment uh, took place in Steve and Holly Newman's wedding. Those of you that uh, <clears throat> are my friends know the story. The rest of you uh, uh, probably, well, I, actually, it's fortunate that you don't know. Uh, Steve, I've known Steve ever since he was a student. We uh, sort of grew up together. And when he and Holly decided to get married, they, uh, they flew me back to Atlanta, Georgia for the wedding, along with a number of other students, uh, fellow students with Steve who were his uh, attendants, and I think his mother never quite recovered from the sight of, uh, of Steve and his uh, attendants. They were some of the strangest looking people you've ever seen in the world. This was back in the 70s. Steve had uh, shoulder-length hair and a handlebar mustache. You would never know it by uh, looking at him now. In case you don't know who Steve is, he's one of our missionaries in Singapore now, working at Singapore Bible College. But he was just a strange, weird uh, college student back in those days. And uh, his attendance looked somewhat uh, the same way. Uh, Jack Crabtree, who now is a teacher at uh, Christian Alternatives in Eugene, Oregon, showed up at the wedding with his tux and a pair of sandals and a red bandana around his head. <laughs> he actually had brought his shoes. He just didn't wear them when he came into the church. And it's that sort of thing that made Holly's mother very suspicious about the whole uh, operation. <laughs> and she was a little bit edgy. But I kept assuring her, everything is going to be all right. It's going to work out well. Don't, don't be concerned. These are solid young men. There will be no problems. Well, when the wedding actually took place, it was, uh, it was just a beautiful wedding. Yeah, it, was, it was done in the Peachtree Presbyterian Church, beautiful church in Atlanta with, with a long aisle, supposedly the longest aisle in the world. That's one of their claims to fame. And the whole thing just mesmerized me, watching one after another of these young ladies come down, and uh, it took forever. And finally, Holly came down to the front with her father. And, and you know Holly, she was just the picture of of southern elegance and grace. And uh, I, when they came to the front of the, of the, uh, of the auditorium, I, I looked at Holly and smiled, and then I looked at her father, and I said, Who gives this man to be married to this woman? <laughs> Two things happened in rapid succession. Her mother gasped. <clears throat> Audibly, you could hear it all over the auditorium. She went, <gasps> <laughs> and the guys that were Steve's attendants just cracked up. <laughs> and I didn't know what I'd said. <laughs> I knew I'd said something wrong, but I didn't realize what it was. And it took me a few minutes to recover, and someone whispered to me, You got it backwards. <laughs> and so I said it the proper way, and we went on with the wedding, but. Uh, Holly's mother has never recovered from that moment, and neither have I. But the worst thing that ever happened to anyone at a wedding happened to a friend of mine. This actually happened. It's Sherm Williams is his name. Some of you may know him. He's pastor of Redwood Chapel down in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's marrying a couple they'd known all of his life. They'd grown up in his church. And about halfway through the ceremony, 
he looked at the young lady and she was just in utter shock. And he looked at the young man and he was white as a sheet. And he suddenly realized that all through the service he had been using the name of the groom's former girlfriend. <clears throat> now that's embarrassing. But the Apostle Paul had one uh, that was far more embarrassing. As a matter of fact, it was one of the most humiliating things that could ever happen to one. And, it's, and the story is told in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. Will you, will you turn with me, please, to that, that section of, of the Scripture? 2 Corinthians 11. As you know, Paul is uh, talking nonsense, as he would put it, engaging in a bit of foolishness. He's uh, commending himself which is the sort of thing he disliked doing. He knew it was wrong. As he tells us in the passage this morning, it's unchristlike to do this. Nevertheless, he was, forced, he was forced into it because of the situation in Corinth. You know what was happening. His authority was being undermined as an apostle because he wasn't one of the, one of the twelve, one of the original twelve. And uh, because his authority was suspect, his message, his gospel was suspect. A group of, of false apostles had crept into the church in Corinth, and they were teaching something other than Paul's gospel, saying that he had no authority to say what he said. And uh, so Paul argues strongly on his behalf, though he's reluctant to do so, because he realizes that the fate of the church is at stake. He, he says, this is foolishness. He doesn't like to do it. Nevertheless, he must. Now, uh, we pick up uh, his argument in verse 16. Again, I say, Paul says, let no one think me foolish. But if you do receive me, even as foolish, that I may boast a little. That which I am speaking, I am not speaking as the Lord would. You, you never heard the Lord say this sort of thing. He never commended himself. He never insisted upon, the, upon recognition and exaltation, though he was God in flesh. But he says, I'm speaking in foolishness, in this confidence of, of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. Those uh, false, uh, false apostles, super apostles, he calls them in Corinth, were boasting about their authority. Paul says, well, I must boast also. For, he says, being, uh, for you being so wise, bear with the foolish gladly. You put up with their foolishness, he says. Now put up with a little of mine, will you? For you bear with anyone if he enslaves you. These men were making the, the people in Corinth dependent upon them rather than dependent upon Christ. One of the marks of valid, authentic spiritual leadership is that, uh, is that, it creates a, uh, is, is that they create a hunger in the hearts of other people for God and a dependence upon the Lord Jesus, not upon a man, a teacher, a leader. Paul says, these men have made you dependent upon them. They've enslaved you to serve them rather than to, to serve Christ. Or if he devours you, he says, you, you put up with that. Paul uses the same term that our Lord used with the Pharisees when he described them as devouring widows' houses. That is, uh, taking money from, from elderly women to build their buildings and to fund their programs and to enrich themselves. Paul says, you, you put up with that when they, uh, when they devour you. When they take advantage of you, in other words, they use you to accomplish their programs. 
when they exalt themselves. If he hits you in the face, they not only push themselves, but they push the Corinthians around. Apparently they even inflicted uh, physical uh, uh, damage on them, slapped them and humiliated them in, in various ways. Paul said, you put up with all of that. That sort of foolishness. Now put up with some of mine. Uh, this is not really Paul's point, but as an aside, I would like to say that I think what you have here is a negative checklist of, uh, of inauthentic Christian leadership. If, if you see these sorts of things turning up in someone who, who purports, who, who considers himself a Christian leader, then we ought not to follow that leadership. If they make us dependent upon them rather than upon Christ, if they want to be served and pandered to and pampered and and have their ego salved, and, and uh, they want to be ministered to rather than minister to others, or if they enslave rather than set free, or uh, if they humiliate rather than build up and, and, and teach people to be confident in Christ, then, then that's invalid leadership. It's not Christian leadership. It's not leadership after the model of Christ and the Lord, uh, Christ and Paul. Because, as Paul puts it, I'm sorry, he says, I was too weak for all of that. See, they, they were saying in Corinth, you know, Paul is a weakling. He doesn't come on strong. He doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't, uh, he isn't bold and aggressive in his leadership like we are. And Paul says, that's, that's right. If that's what it takes to be a leader, uh, to have leadership, if you have to push people around and exploit them and take advantage of them and use them, and, and if you have to see people as, as, uh, as mere objects rather than people loved and cared for by God, then you're right, I'm too weak for that. Paul says that's not the kind of leadership that we're, that we're proud of. To my shame, he says in verse 21, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in, in foolishness, I am just as bold myself. Now, Paul says, these people are, are talking about themselves, they're commending themselves, boasting about what they've achieved. Now, I'd like to, to do the same thing. Paul says, I'm going to strut my stuff. I'm going to boast a little bit, tell you about uh, what I've accomplished, what my, my achievements are. And what follows are a list of his achievements. Now, you have to understand that Paul is using irony here. In other words, he, he's, he's making statements that are to be understood in precisely the, with precisely the opposite meaning than what, what we would understand literally. Irony is a, is a form of, of light or gentle sarcasm, and it can be a very useful tool. Uh, because very often when, when people engage in ironic statements, the, the people who, who hear, hear themselves saying the same things. And the truth comes home to them. Now, basically, that's what Paul is doing. These men are boasting about their achievements. Now, let me boast about my achievements, he says. And what follows in verses 22 to the end of the chapter are a list of his accomplishments. He begins first with uh, something of his heritage, his religious and ethnic heritage. Are they Hebrews? So am I. In other words, are they native-born Jews? born in Palestine, for whom Hebrew was their, uh, their natural language, their first language. Paul says, I was a Hebrew. I speak Hebrew. I read Hebrew. I speak Aramaic. I read Aramaic. I can read the Bible in, in the original languages. I'm a Hebrew, he says. Uh, 
Secondly, are they Israelites? That is, descendants of Jacob. Jacob was the first Israelite, you know. He, he was the man who was given the name Israel, one who prevails over God, a prince with God. And uh, the twelve tribes of Israel were descended from his sons, his twelve sons. Paul says, are they, uh, can they trace their descent back to, to Jacob? I can. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. I can trace my line of descent all the way back to the father of the nation of, of Israel. Abraham, who is the father of all of us, as Paul puts it. Abraham, who was the first in a long line of, uh, of, of Jews. Uh, the one through whom the promised seed, the Messiah, would come. Uh, are they descendants of Abraham? Paul says, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? He said, I... I have gone insane. He says, that I should talk like this. He says, I'm talking crazy, he says. Uh, are, they, are they ministers or servants of Christ? I more so. And then he proceeds to list his achievements in his ministry. What he has done for Christ. In far more labors. I've worked harder than any of them. Uh, I, uh, I wrote a, a column once for the Fit magazine, the little newspaper that comes out of the courthouse here in Boise, in which I, uh, I uh, determined the number of miles that Paul must have walked in his missionary journeys. And it came uh, to be something like uh, four to 5,000 miles that this man walked in the course of the years of ministry that, uh, in which he traveled all over the ancient world, from uh, Jerusalem to what would be Turkey today, planting churches in, in the northern part of Turkey in the region of Galatia and Iconium and Lystra and Derby, and on down into the western part of Asia Minor and then over in Greece and Macedonia and he went as far as Rome and then into Spain and probably as far as Britain before he was uh, taken prisoner for the last time. Paul says he, he worked harder than any of these super apostles in Corinth, planting churches and and serving uh, those churches that he established. Uh, in far more imprisonments, he says, have, have they been put in jail for their faith? Paul had a record a mile long. Uh, one of the early church fathers, uh, Clement of Rome, said that there were at least seven occasions when Paul was in prison, sometimes for several years. He was imprisoned in Jerusalem. In Philippi, as a matter of fact, Philippi is the only place in which he was in prison before he makes the statement, which would suggest that there are other times that he was in prison that we don't know anything about. First in Philippi, then in Jerusalem, then in Caesarea for a couple of years, then in Rome for two years, then he set sail for the, for the west, for Spain, and then he came back to, to Rome and was imprisoned again and finally died there at least seven times. Paul was in prison, and I'm sure wherever he went, he was hounded and harassed by the local authorities because he was known to be a troublemaker. Wherever he went, the Jews uh, usually rioted and caused distress in the, in the province, and so the Roman authorities watched him like a hawk. I can remember uh, back in the, in the 60s uh, on the campuses in the Bay Area when, when people like Stokely Carmichael and Rap Brown and Eldridge Cleaver and the Chicago 7 and people like that showed up there. They, they would watch them carefully, and if they stepped out of line at all, they were immediately taken because they, everywhere they went, they created problems. 
And I'm not at all acquainting Paul, equating Paul with, these, uh, with the radicals of the 60s, but, but Paul must have experienced the same sort of thing when he set foot in town. Word preceded him. Here's a troublemaker. Keep an eye on him. And he had this long rap sheet at the uh, local police... Uh, uh, that the local police kept, and they, they knew him to be the kind of person who created problems wherever he went, so they watched him, and the minute he stepped out of line, they'd pick him up and, and put him in prison. Paul says, can they, can they boast in their imprisonment? I'm more, he says. Beaten, times without number. Uh, he will elaborate on that a bit later. Often in danger of death, that is, he faced uh, imminent death time and time again. And he says on one occasion that he had, had faced uh, the wild beasts at Ephesus, whether he's talking metaphorically about people or the, the animals, the wild animals in the, uh, in the arena, we don't know. But we know that he faced the death sentence a number of times in his life and uh, finally was beheaded by, by Nero. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Uh, according to Old Testament law, only 40 lashes could be administered in the rabbis in order to uh, keep from, you know, they were so scrupulous in their observance of the law, they didn't want to give 41 lashes. So they reduced the penalty to 39 lashes. And what they used was a, a leather whip with three thongs, which they uh, used to give 13 stripes. So Paul had... Uh, what, 195 lash marks on his back? Those things left marks that, uh, that, that endured. Paul says to the church in Galatia, no one can trouble me because I bear in my body the marks of Christ. He had been beaten time and time again by the Jews. Lashing was a peculiarly Jewish uh, form of punishment. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's the Roman form of corporal punishment. Uh, you may have seen the symbol of Roman rule. It's a battle axe with a bundle of rods uh, uh, arranged around the shaft of the battle axe. It was also Mussolini's symbol. Uh, it endures to this day as a symbol of fascism because in Latin the word for rod is fascist. And uh, it's a symbol of, of the iron hand of, of government. And uh, the Roman... Uh, Roman Empire was famous for this form of corporal punishment. They had men that were called lictors, whose function it was to, to, to use these rods on the backs of, of people that were out of line. Three times, Paul said, he experienced this form of punishment. Once I was stoned. We know where that was. That's recorded for us in the book of Acts. That was at Lystra, where he was uh, stoned and, and uh, battered and, and left for dead. Uh, I have a young life friend who said that he was reading through this passage one time to a group of his kids. And when he read that phrase, once I was stoned, one of the kids in the group piped up and said, that's nothing, my old man gets stoned every weekend. But uh, that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about being stoned with rocks. And it was a form of capital punishment that was used by the, by the Jews. Three times I was shipwrecked. Uh, it's interesting that not one of those shipwrecks are recorded in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, you read through the book of Acts, and Luke's account of what Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel is incredible. You think, how could any man suffer that much? And yet when you read this account, you realize that Luke left much out of the account. 
In fact, many more things happened to Paul than Luke included in his history. And here's a, here's a case in point. Three times Paul says he was shipwrecked. The only shipwreck we know about is the one recorded in the last part of the book of Acts where Paul was on his way from Caesarea to Rome. And we know he was adrift for a period of time when that ship broke up. But this is the only, uh, that's the only one we know about. But Paul says three times before that one that we're aware of, he had been shipwrecked. And a night and a day he had been in the deep. He had treaded water for 24 hours waiting for, for rescue out in the, in the Mediterranean Ocean. Uh, travel by ship was very dangerous back in those days. You never knew if you'd arrive at your destination, and yet that was the, uh, that was the method of travel which Paul most uh, employed, getting from one place to another. I have been on frequent journeys. He was on the road all the time. He lived out of a suitcase. He didn't have a place he could call home. Like the Lord, he could have said, uh, the animals have holes to live in, the birds have nests, but uh, Paul had no place to lay his head, no place he could call home. In dangers from rivers, uh, very often they, they, he, he was in country where there were no bridges, so he had to forge streams. I've often thought that would be a good motto for fly fishers, in danger from rivers. Dangers from robbers, this was a very real threat in those days. You know the story of the Good Samaritan. That wasn't a story that Jesus made up. Those sorts of things actually happened. That's why they often carried sidearms. Even Jesus uh, once asked the disciples if they had any swords. Peter said, we have two. And Jesus said, well, that's enough. The point is you you need something to defend yourself with, but uh, don't overdo, he's saying. Uh, There was a very real threat from, from bandits and robbers as Paul traveled from one place to the next. Dangers from my countrymen, that is the Jews. Dangers from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city, got run down by a taxi cab. Dangers in the wilderness, some wild animals. Dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, that is false Christians. I have been in labor and hardship. He's referring about his manual labor. I remember I mentioned last week that Paul was a scholar. He'd been trained as a scholar. He had no trade. So he picked up leather working as a trade to support himself, which was hard work. They made sails and cloaks and, and tents and those sorts of things. It was hard, dirty work. Paul says he, he had to labor hard to support himself so he could minister to the churches. Through many sleepless nights, often when he traveled, he was unable to find inns, places to stay, and so he just continued to walk through the night. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern or my indignation? Not only did Paul have circumstantial outward hardships, but he had a lot of internal struggles. The church, many of the churches were falling apart. There was the intrusion of these false teachers uh, into the churches, and Paul was, over, was concerned. Anxious is the word he puts, is the word he uses for these churches. Who is weak? He says that I'm not weak. He empathized with those that were struggling and weak and failing. And, and who, who is not led into sin and, and I do not become indignant? He, he was frustrated and indignant at the sin, not at the people, but at the sin that, that ensnared, captured the people that he had led to Christ. And you look back through this uh, list of of boasts, as he put it, things that he placed his, could have placed his confidence in, and you see something of the extent of the love of, 
of the apostle for people. Why did he do it? See, well, it's because he loved people. Now, love always costs. And it cost the apostle Paul dearly. Uh, he, he said in Philippians 3 that he had counted everything as, as loss. Everything is rubbish that he might gain Christ. I think he probably lost his family. He doesn't mention that here. But it's my belief that Paul had been married. Uh, you had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. That was Jewish law. And Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. We're told that he cast his lot against Stephen, which would suggest that he was a voting member of the Jewish, uh, this uh, judicial group, uh, the Sanhedrin. And so I, I believe that when he became a Christian, his, his wife would have none of it, and he lost everything. He lost his home. He lost many of his friends. And his life became one of, of hardship from that point on. Why? Well, because he loved people. That's why. Love always costs. It'll cost us if we love people like this. It'll mean that we'll have to take a lot of grief and a lot of guff from people that we, that we care about. But as in the case of Paul, if we love people more than we love ourselves, then we'll be willing to undergo anything for their sake. As Paul puts it later in chapter 12, Verse 15, I will gladly be spent and be expended for your souls. If I love you the more, am I to be loved the less? That was what motivated the apostle, his love for Christ and his love for these people. Now, uh, we come to what I think is the central part of this, uh, of this entire section in verse 30. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to to my weakness. Now he, Paul says, we're going to get serious. Everything above is tongue in cheek. I would never boast about these things in reality. It's not what I'm, what I'm proud of. If you want to know what, what I am most, uh, what I feel best about as I look back on my life, what I boast in, what's most meaningful to me, it's this. Verse 31, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. Now, this is an oath. Paul takes a solemn oath here because uh, uh, he's anticipating our reaction to what follows. What follows seems so mundane and anticlimactic that we would raise the question, Why, Paul? Why do you boast? This couldn't possibly be what you boast in. Paul says, now, now, I want you to understand, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. As I look back on my life and I enumerate all my achievements and everything that's been accomplished, this is it. This is the best of all. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratus the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. And we say, come on, Paul. It's almost as though he forgot something that he should have included in the list earlier, and now he tags it on the end, but it's anticlimactic. It doesn't seem very, uh, very important at all. Paul says, here are all the things that I could boast in, the fact that I've been beaten, time without uh, number, I've been mistreated, I've been in danger in the city and the countryside and from my own people and from the Gentiles, and I've often faced death. But he says, I don't boast in any of that. 
What I really boast in is the time when I fled the city of Damascus under cover of darkness. And we say, what, what's so significant about that event? Well, let me tell you what happened. The story is told in Acts 9. You can read it on your own. We'll not take time to read it this morning. Paul was a rising young star in Judaism, been trained by the, by the intellectual elite of Israel. He was a brilliant young man. He had a great future ahead of him. As he puts it, he was noted for his persecution of the church. He pursued, relentlessly pursued Christians. He hated Christianity. He hated Christ and everything that he stood for because he felt that it was an attack upon, upon Judaism, his Jewishness. And so he set out to persecute the church and to prosecute Christians. He had official letters from the spiritual leaders of, of Israel in Jerusalem, giving him permission to go up to Damascus and imprison Christians. And as you know, on the way he met the Lord. The Lord appeared to him, and, and in a miraculous way, the Apostle Paul was converted. His heart was changed, and he became submissive to, to Christ as Lord. And he realized his whole life had been out of line up to that point. Though he thought he was doing the right thing, he was, he was dead wrong. And the Lord led him to a man named Annas up in Damascus, who... who did two things for him. He helped him regain his sight, and he told him that he was going to suffer great things for the sake of the kingdom of God. And then the Apostle Paul, as far as we know from the book of Galatians, went out into the desert for a period of time, up to three years, where he studied the scriptures, and he was taught by the Spirit of Christ the things that he needed to know in order to reorient himself as a Christian, he had to take all of the Old Testament promises and translate that into a, to a, uh, an understanding of, uh, of Christian faith and what Christ came to do. It took some time. And as he tells us in Galatians, the Lord himself taught him during that time. And then Paul started back into, and he went back into Damascus and started to preach in the synagogues. And, and, and this is what went through his head. I am God's gift to the nation of Israel. Can you imagine why he would feel that way? He was one of the rising young stars of Judaism. He was known all over Palestine and, uh, and, the, and its environs as, as one of the bright young stars. And uh, he could imagine himself going into the synagogue and using his rapier-like mind to, uh, to put down any argument that any Jew could, uh, could suggest that would undermine Christ's authority in his message. And he began to preach. And Luke tells us that he powerfully refuted the arguments of the Jews. They couldn't resist his logic. But he didn't produce a revival. He produced a riot. And the, the Christians got together and they began to discuss the problem that the Apostle Paul had created. And they said, we've got to get this guy to town. If we don't get rid of Paul, he's going to set back the cause of Christ 15 years. We've got to get rid of this guy before he destroys what we've been able to do in this town. Because they, they, were, they were ready to tear Paul limb from limb. And they were getting the attention, gaining the attention of the Roman authorities. And they knew the next step would be that the Roman authorities would step in and put down this rebellion and oppress the church. So we've got to get him out of here. So one night, they hustle Paul under cover of darkness... 
out to the city wall, put him in a rope basket, actually it's a fish basket, and let him down over the side. And uh, he fled through the night. The most ignominious moment in, in, the, in the life of the Apostle Paul. He was utterly humiliated. He, he went down to Jerusalem and he thought he would have a, a great effect on the Jews down there in Jerusalem because after all, wasn't he, uh, wasn't he known? Had he been Hillel's student? He, he was well known there. And he did exactly the same thing. And the, and the apostles said, we've got to get rid of this guy. So they took him over to Caesarea and they put him on a ship and they said, Hey, Paul, we'll pray for you. Uh, just stay out of Jerusalem, please. And they sent him up to Tarsus. And for 10 to 12 years, no one heard a thing from the Apostle Paul until Barnabas went up to get him. The church in Antioch was founded and it began to grow. And Barnabas remembered the Apostle Paul. And, and he went up to get him and brought him back as a teacher. That was some 10 to 12 years later. Paul says, You want to know what I glory in? It was this humiliating night when I had to run for my life. When I totally disgraced myself. When I realized that it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit. You see? Paul was doing precisely what you and I do when many of us become Christians and we start thinking, my, I have so many things to offer God and so many things to offer God's people. I'm going to set the world on fire. And uh, we, you know, though our, we have our faith in Christ, basically our confidence is in ourselves, in our ability, in our personality, in our training, in our intellect, in, a, in, the, in our humor, or in the strength of our personality, or in our physical appearance, or something else other than God. And we think we're going to have an overwhelming effect on people. And all we do is create problems and humiliate ourselves. Because we haven't yet learned that the source of our power comes from God, you see. Now, Paul was able to use his intellect and uh, his education, but he had to learn not to depend upon it. Now, he says almost the same thing in Philippians. If you turn with me to Philippians 3, Paul says in verse 4, I might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, some of you I know, and I can say the same for myself, can look back on humiliating experiences in our life, times when we have utterly disgraced ourselves, embarrassed ourselves. Maybe it's some business decision that you made. You mortgaged your home, and you invested all of that money in some venture that didn't work out, and you lost everything. And you look back on that as one of the most disgraceful eras of, of your life when you caused so much pain to your family. 
Or maybe you can look back on some extramarital affair. It was just a, just a kind of a fling, and you got involved in it because you were unsatisfied and unhappy at home, and, and it resulted in the destruction of your family or the loss of your children or the loss of, of the love of someone who really cared about you. Or it may be any number of things, some decision that you made, something that you did that utterly humiliated you. Now, that can be. That can be the thing that you look back on with thanksgiving. Or it can be, to this day, simply a source of humiliation. It depends on how we see it. If we see that as a time when we learn not to count upon ourselves, if we see how disastrous things can, what kind of disaster we can produce when we act in confidence in the flesh rather than in Christ, then it becomes a good thing because it turns us to the Lord and we begin to count on Him, you see. And I would leave with you what, what, what Peter leaves with us in his epistle when he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. See, it's the Lord who brings us into those circumstances where all of the confidence is crushed out of us so that we learn that what we have in Christ is what matters. We cannot count on ourselves. We can't depend upon our own, on the energy of the flesh. We have to rely upon him. And the question I would ask myself and ask you is, do we see that as the hand of God, that embarrassing moment, that humiliating incident? Those are the fingers of God on our life. That's his effort to humble us so that he can exalt us in due time. Let's pray. Would you think back in your own life to that, to that moment, your most humiliating time? And would you look at it the way God looks at it, not... Not as something that will perpetually and eternally humiliate us and frustrate us, but simply an opportunity to learn how much we need God in our life. How closely we have to walk with Him and depend upon Him for all of life. Will you thank Him for that time? And thank Him for His grace that enables us to, to go on trusting and believing and counting upon him. Father, we thank you for the growth that comes out of these humiliating events in our life. We thank you that you are in control, that you do not let us go on in the energy of the flesh because you know that the flesh profits nothing. We can spend our entire life relying upon our own resources and and completely miss all the good things that you have for us. All of the resources that are available to us. We don't want to miss them, Lord. We We want to buy up the time. We want to use up everything that you have for us. Give us the grace to see things, though they may be embarrassing, as opportunities for growth. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you never let us go. You never leave us alone. You relentlessly pursue us to draw us to yourself and give us everything that, that you've purposed for us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.